You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We make movies nobody ever sees. If you get lucky, all of a sudden you make a movie that somebody will see. I did a movie that got up on the feature screen. I did something on TV that actually played. I'm making a movie nobody will ever see. Who knew this would happen? Lots of weird, crazy moments. Like, this makes no sense at all. But let's do it anyway. I must have eaten, like, a fucking metric ton of chocolate over one summer. So they're just, like, melting all over me. And I hated that chocolate. I hated that scene. Oh, my God, that's Peter from the Root. Put him in it, put him in it. I thought for a little while that somebody was like, there's going to be hidden cameras here, you know what I mean? Until it's going to all be a joke, you know what I mean? Five fucking minutes, dude. I told you I haven't got five fucking minutes. We had no idea that people would continue to see it over and over and over and over and fucking over again. And... <laughs> Welcome to a special joint episode of The Projection Booth and proudly resents two famous, infamous, infamous. cult podcasts or pot cult casts. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me is the other host, Mr. Adam Spiegelman. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me on your show and thanks for being on my show at the same time. I feel like Seth Brundle. I'm in like two places at once. I wish I was nerdy enough to know what that meant. But your show is, it's good because it's the number one and number two favorite shows. Yours is my number one favorite show. And mine is my number two, and that's only because I know the host. And all of the skeletons in the closet? Yeah, right. I know everything about him. He knows everything about me, and I don't want to get him pissed off. I don't know. Tell me where you're recording from. Where exactly are you? I record always down in my basement. It's not my mother's basement, but I actually own the house, so it's my basement. Your mom's upstairs cooking. We are on this very special episode of the Projection Booth Proudly Resents and looking at the 2016 documentary Room Full of Spoons by Rick Harper. It is a look at one of the most captivatingly bad films that has ever broken into popular culture, The Room, of course. And it is also kind of a story of the making of The Room as well as the making of Room Full of Spoons itself. So it's kind of a a two for one here. It makes sense. Like it, It isn't jarring that he changes from one to the other. Right. No, it flows really well, really well. And I was glad that he kind of weaves his own story in throughout. So it's not just like, okay, and now I'm going to tell you about the making of the documentary, like an hour and a half in, he really kind of keeps the story, everything moving at the same pace and doesn't just like, yeah, just suddenly like, okay, now we're shifting gears. It just moves together really well, really well edited film. Yeah. Yeah. He does a great job and um, he obviously worked on it really hard for a long time. 
the passion for not only the room, but also for this project itself definitely comes through. And I was really glad to see that because I was like, oh man, this could have gone really bad, really fast. And, you know, I I was really afraid to put it on because I've been talking with, with Rick through Facebook for probably over a year and it was like i can't wait to see this movie i really want to talk with you when it's out and then when he finally sent the link for me to see it i was just like oh boy you know because some of these can go really wrong really fast but i was very pleasantly surprised so much so that i watched the documentary start to finish and then watched it again two weeks later being tonight start to finish and i was like all right perfect cut and go i thought it was really good as well i mean for somebody who's obsessed with the movie as myself, when I when I met him online, he wrote me about helping promote the film. I was weary. I didn't know how good it was going to be. You know that it, it, that would be so good because you you never know. I mean, a lot of times, especially since it took so long, it's like a fly by night thing. And 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 then if I can be full disclosure, I, in the back of my mind, I don't know if you too, but I was like, I've always wanted to make a documentary about this movie. And so there was a little bit of not jealousy, but like, oh, let's see what this guy did. Even though he did it, you know, that kind of like, oh, I could have done better, even though I never would have done it. Well, you've kind of done some of the legwork here. You've done a lot of interviews with people that were involved with The Room, and that's where I kind of became more familiar with The Room. Like, of course, I've seen the movie, I listened to the riff tracks, those kind of things, but actually getting to know the behind the scenes, other than when The Disaster Artist came out, I didn't know anything about the actual making of the movie, other than listening to the interviews that you've done on your show. It's fascinating. Yeah, I was so obsessed with it. And then uh, Entertainment Weekly, I guess there's a couple of writers also obsessed with it. They did a few articles on it. They interviewed a guy who claims that he directed The Room. I was working on a talk show at the time, and I challenged the guy to find him. I didn't find him myself. So we found him, and I one of I went to college with a mutual friend, and he agreed to do the interview. And it's really a fascinating interview. If I can plug uh, I Directed The Room on Proudly Resents, we'll link to it. But he tells all the cool stories, whether or not you believe he directed it or not. He tells all these great stories and answers questions like, why is there a TV facing the wall? And uh, he says, because you can see the camera in the TV, in the reflection of the TV. So I just turned it around. Now, is that Sandy Schlar? Yeah, Sandy Schlar, which is so funny. And especially in the movie, he's in there a lot. And he, it's so funny. He tells the story exactly the same way he does on my podcast. You know, the intonations. And I was sitting with him on the set of like Teenage Ninjas or something. It's a show on... Um, I don't know, ABC Family at the time. But it was a kid show, and he was a script supervisor. And during the lunch, he had me sit with him on set. And the sound operator recorded it for us. But it was just great to hear him tell all these great stories about the thing. But, oh, the fact that he wants credit for directing the world's worst film is fascinating. And and it took a little while for that to even come out. Because I remember seeing The Room, like, a while before I saw the headline on your, your Facebook feed. And I was just like somebody's trying to take credit for this? What kind of goofy thing is this? Because it's like, you know, whenever a big movie comes out, it seems like there's going to be maybe two years hence, or maybe right around the time of it coming out, going to be the, well, this sounds exactly like my screenplay, and I'm suing this guy kind of thing. And it's just like, you know, the Hateful Eight came out. It was, oh, well, I wrote this thing that is exactly Django Unchained. Why now? I mean, it, it almost seems like you're helping promote the other movie, or and, and there's just always that question, like, why now? Why so many years after The Room is this guy coming forward and saying that he directed this? And yeah, why is he trying to take credit for 
one of the worst movies ever made. You would think that he would be absolutely fine giving Wizzo the whole enchilada with that. I, you know, his success has many fathers, you know, and he, um, I think if the movie wasn't such a cult hit, he would be, he wouldn't give a shit. He, you know, uh, that's why he, he even said, I asked him that in the podcast and he says, well, because what if somebody wants to give like $3 million to, uh, make the next, the room, I don't want him to give it to Tommy. I want to give it to me. It's like, well, the idea is that it's so bad. It's such lightning in the bottle. Like there's no way you can make that movie again. And who would hire you? You want to hire Tommy cause he's, fucking tommy he's a kook you know he's a personality and this movie too actually ties into that because tommy for some reason in real life uh starts to hate the documentarian and makes these youtube videos slamming the documentary almost like he's trying to promote the documentary he did this guy a huge favor Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't have even heard about it and until those videos. And he was just so vocal about everything. It's like, all right. Yeah. Is this some weird, twisted publicity thing? No, I don't think so. Also, how much fun is it to be the guy in the other end of Tommy's abuse? Because you're like, now you're in Tommy's world. You're part of the room. You're part of history. It's so great. And just, I love that they have to subtitle all the, the conversations and stuff. And it's just like, even subtitled, it's like, wow, this English is just not flying whatsoever. You know, he talks about hanging out with Tommy, but he only talks about it. Like, he has no recordings of it. I thought that was weird that he uh, didn't bother to film the times he hung out with him. I don't know why that is, or he just wanted it to be in the moment. But it felt like, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. We did get the, like you said, the... um the f- messages of Tommy yelling at him and calling him all kinds of names. So why didn't recording of anything else? I don't know how they do things in Canada, but here in the United States. That was a great thing with the movie, too. The guy critiqued it. He said, you know, in movies, it's show, don't tell. Here's tell, then show. Uh, yeah, I forgot about Tommy. Um, he says, I'm going to record the phone call, then walks over slowly, gets an old school tape recorder, puts a tape in it, puts it next to a phone. And now, voila, he's got a recording device. Clear as day recordings of these phone calls. Yeah, right. Clear as day. And, and just the exact moment that you need. I haven't seen The Room nearly as many times as the people in the documentary. I mean, people are saying, like, oh, I've seen it 40, 50 times. I don't know why I haven't uh, indulged that much. But, it. I mean, it's still a little bit painful for me sometimes to try to sit down and watch it. Well, that's because you don't see it with an audience. That's true. I can never see it on DVD. You have to see at least get a couple newbies in there with you. It's a boring ass movie. It's a shitty movie, but with a crowd of people throwing spoons and yelling stuff and pointing out things you never even thought of, it's so much fun. It it, it gets a little like I don't know if this happens at a couple times at bad movie nights. It gets a little like machismo where people are just screaming shit nonstop and you can't even hear yourself think. Yeah, so the, I wish there was a little bit more order to the disorder, but. Or you can just listen to the people you like. Like you can put on headphones and you can dial in like a silent disco to who you think is funny. Well, they need like the, what's the guy's name? Sal Piero from the Rocky Horror Picture Show to kind of codify what you're supposed to say and then actually have the script and everything as far as, you know, the good lines to say to the screen and when to throw the spoons and those kind of things. So he actually organized when people said what? He was there when it was the audience participation album was being recorded. So people who weren't 
in New York City when Rocky Horror was going on would be able to get this album and basically memorize the talkbacks to Rocky Horror. So you're in Wisconsin or wherever, and it's just like, oh, now I know what I'm supposed to say to the screen at this particular time. And yes, of course, things would shift and change. And like, you know, in Detroit, it, instead of like, I want to go the distance, we would say, I want to fuck the pistons. So you would like work in local humor kind of thing. But for the most part, what we were saying in Detroit was the same thing being said in New York, was the same thing in LA. So yeah, he helped codify what you're supposed to say at Rocky Horror. So I think we need something like that for the room maybe too. I saw it in New Jersey in this theater, and the, the uh, usher comes out before and goes, hey, no smoking, no throwing stuff directly at the screen, and no something else. All right, have fun. And then he yelled the greatest lines I've ever heard. But when Magenta goes down the banister, she says, I'm lucky, you're lucky. And then he yelled out, the banister's lucky. I was waiting for that on the album, and it didn't come up. But So, yeah, I do like the way that we learn much more about the room while we're learning about the way that documentary is put together. And there's a lot of stuff in here that, because I, again, I was afraid putting this on. I was like, well, I just listened to the, uh, the disaster artist. What is this going to tell me that I don't know? And getting all those perspectives from all the other actors, I thought was fantastic. And especially the guy that plays, is it, is it Mike? The guy, the me underwears guy. I love it. The guy who comes out of nowhere, right? Oh, he was so good. That guy. And then, also, the guy who shows up at the end at the party, the guy with the weird shoulder and stuff, he was fantastic, too. All right. So the guy who shows up. So if you haven't seen the movie, inexplicably, a guy just shows up in the middle of the film and acts like he's been there the whole time. So that interview with him was fantastic because he explains everything you want to know about that. Of course, he was hired last second because the other guy quit. Of course, he didn't know what was going on. Of course, he thought he was a terrible actor. Of course, he sucked. And then why was his shoulder like that? And he explains that, too. He was in an accident or something. <laughs> but then the, the guy the guy looked like Dane Cook. Like Yes, that guy. Yeah, it's so funny. He comes off as full of himself on the documentary as he comes off in the, uh, in the movie itself. Something about him, even though he does seem like he's full of himself, just was super amusing to me. I don't know what it was. Yeah, oh, yeah, very honest. Everybody, especially the, the woman plays um, Lisa was just fantastic. I loved it. When she's, they asked the great question about how does she feel about being Lisa, and she said, right, at first it bothered her, and then she learned to embrace how much ever because she's never going to get that love anywhere else. It's fantastic. She achieved, and this is what the thing about Tommy is, she achieved fame. She's famous. And, you know, I, I interviewed, uh, not to drop names, but the guy who played Samurai Cop, and his whole life he wanted to be famous. And now he's famous. You know, 25 years later, this movie comes out of nowhere on YouTube and kids love it. He's as famous as he'll ever get. And that's more famous than most people will be. He gets that feeling of people standing up and loving you and wanting your autograph and all that stuff. And Well, yeah, it's ironic that they brought up George Hardy because that was the same thing that we get from Best Worst Movie where this dentist from, what is it, Alabama or whatever, suddenly sees how many people love Troll 2 and just it blows his mind and stuff. And then, you know, seeing him at the conventions and all that kind of stuff. So it was great that at one point there was a project where they wanted to pair up Tommy and George. And Tommy's just like, not this guy. This guy is totally untalented. <laughs> that was amazing. And what a great producer to think of that. Oh, yeah. God, that would have been so cool to see that. A long time ago, I interviewed George Hardy and I asked him what he thought of the room. I'm trying to remember. It was just a funny thing because he's like, eh, it's not that good. 
<laughs> yeah, Hardy doesn't seem to have much artifice to him. You know, he just seems like a very genuine guy. Literally interviewed the guy from his car phone. Like he, it felt like it was a car phone because it was on speaker while he was driving home from the movies on a date. He had forgotten we made this arrangement, you know, time, and then he got out of the movies and saw my phone call and called me back. And yeah, he was on a date. And so I was just asking about the movies because it was Oscar season. He was just saying what movies were bad and which ones were good. This is a genuine guy. Like, again, what dentist is getting interviewed by some random dude? All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Room Full of Spoons, Rick Harper. By the way, this is why your show is so much better because I would never have this interview. What's your background as a filmmaker? I'm just a big film geek, Mike. Always have been. Just been a huge film buff. And I guess like anyone who's really into movies, it was always sort of a dream of mine to become a filmmaker. I'm a writer. I, I wrote a lot of screenplays. I'm mostly into to horror movies. But then, um, you know, this opportunity came along and I, I met Tommy and I figured, you know what? Making a documentary is sort of like an easy introduction into filmmaking. You can do it for, you know, relatively inexpensively. You know what I mean? And uh, and I figured, you know, here's my opportunity to start a production company and and really just start making a movie and see where it takes me. You know, we had done a couple music videos and stuff like that before, but this is uh, this is really my first film. I got to say, I'm so impressed with just the breadth of Roomful of Spoons. It just takes us through so much and so many years, and the editing of this thing must have been a little bit nightmarish. Thanks, man. First of all, it's really nice to hear that because I did pour my heart and soul into this thing. And as a first-time filmmaker, you don't know if you're wasting your time or not. You know, you don't know if if people are going to look at this and say, "Oh, this is amateur hour," or if they're really going to to respond to it. And so far, it's it's really been overwhelming. But it wasn't as bad as it could have been. I mean, you got to understand that, like, when we first started making this thing, we didn't really know where it was going. You know, so typically you make a documentary, you sort of have a story that you know in the back of your mind that you want to tell and you ask strategic questions and stuff like that. We didn't know what we were doing. We'd do interviews that would last three, four hours and just let the person ramble on. That's really cool while you're doing it. But then fast forward to four years later and you have a hundred and something hours worth of interviews and another few hundred hours worth of like B-roll from traveling and stuff like that. It's really hard to try to extract the story out of that. So uh, what I did is it, it really – it took me forever, but I went through every single interview, all the footage that we had, and basically wrote a story. I, I basically like wrote a script with uh, all the you know, little sound bites and stuff like that, and, and, and I had to really piece together the story and, and tell it from like – you had to first of all explain the room to those who had never seen it before to make sure that it was comprehensive for them and then just try to, to, to make sense of these four and a half years that I took filming this thing, you know? And how was it finding all the people to put in this? I mean, not only do you have the actors from the room, the crew, the guy that wrote the score, the guy who directed the film, all this kind of stuff, but then also some of the most uh, you know important fans and just people that are associated with it that you might not immediately think of. It was a lot of persistence and, and honestly, a lot of luck, man. I think that's one of the reasons that this took so long to make. I mean, any studio or anybody like who had you know any type of money would be able to just knock down a project like this in six months. But what happened with me is, you know, there was a few people that responded to me immediately. I just found them on Facebook, like uh, Robin Paris being one of them, uh, Dan Janjigian and uh, Sandy Shaclair. They wrote back right away like, yep, I'm on board. I want to do this. Now, a lot of other people like Juliette Danielle or Phil Haldeman, I think that they might, you know, get a lot of requests like this. 
I'm a first time filmmaker, so it might just be like, yeah, yeah, it's just another fan that wants to interview me or something like that. And I respect that, right? Because, you know, I'm from Canada and, and it's, uh, and, you know, you look on my IMDb, there's not a whole lot there. So I didn't really have that clout. So it took a lot of time to convince some of these people to participate. And as the project grew and they saw that other people were involved and it was a bit more serious, then they were uh, really willing to participate. Other people like Scott Holmes, Scott Holmes, who played Mike, is he's completely off the radar. He, you will not find him on Facebook. You can't Google him. He's impossible to find. With him, for example, I got really lucky. I was in L.A. with uh, Michael Rousselet, and we just went out for sushi. And he's like, oh, this is my friend George. Uh, George Gross is his name. And he's the, uh, the guy who brought the room to, uh, to New York. So when I got back home to Canada, I hit up George, and I was like, hey, let's, let's have a meeting. I went to Brooklyn. We hung out. And uh, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, Scott Holmes, he's like, yeah, he's, he used to be in Brooklyn, he used to do uh, some improv and stuff. He's like, here's his number. So when I came back home, I called him and he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm in Washington, D.C. now. He's like, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't really know if I want to be a part of this and so on. And I, I managed to convince him, gave us a fantastic interview, really, really, really great dude, and then fell off the map again. Like, he's he's a really hard guy to reach, you know. So there was there was a lot of luck and, and some of it was just like um, – like persistence as well, you know. I, I just didn't really want to take no for an answer. I'm a, I'm a bit of a completist, and I wouldn't have been happy until I really had everyone that I wanted to have involved in it, you know. Well, who were some of the people that you wanted to get that you were unable to get in front of the camera? There was one gentleman by the name of Dan Wells. Dan Wells, he was the original, originally casted Mark in the film. He quit for his own reasons. Now, I didn't get to talk to him, so I don't really want to get into that. But, you know, he, he quit the film along with uh, Brianna Hazard. I found him on Facebook, and I sent him countless messages, and he just never responded to me. And I think he's just really trying to put that in his past. So I, I really would have liked to get him on camera because his story seemed pretty fascinating. And I'm sure he would have heard, you know, a different perspective from, uh, you know, from somebody who either f- got fired or that, uh, that quit uh, the project. And then um, two of the DPs, yeah, Raphael Smadja and one of the other DPs, uh, Graham Furifas, didn't want to take part in the project. They were, you know, very nice about it. They were really cool about it. And they're like, good luck, but I sort of want to put this in my past. And Todd Barron, we had an interview scheduled with him. And then he had a family emergency the the day that we were scheduled to interview him. And then we had to leave. Like, we were leaving that the following day. So that didn't work out. But uh, it would have been really cool to hear some of their stories. But at the same time, I have to respect that because, you know, these are really talented DPs. Like if you look them up on IMDb, like the room should have probably never happened. Like they've worked on really, really big projects and these are uh, respected DPs. In, in Hollywood. So as, as far as like, you know, the room, it's fun for the actors to be known for that and stuff like that. But the DP is a pretty respected position uh, on a film set. So I, I could appreciate that they didn't really want to uh, just just talk about pro- possibly the worst project they'd been on, you know? It sounds like he definitely racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles on this. Yeah, we traveled a lot. Like I said, uh, I'm in Amsterdam right now. I uh, just got back from Spain where we premiered the film. Uh, I was in Poland. I'm leaving for Denmark and then going to the UK. Like, yeah, we've we've been all over and all over America as well. I went as far as like, it was a really cool thing about this is that I went places I would have never been. Like we went to Alabama. We spent two days at uh, George Hardy's house. We did an interview with him on his boat. And, and just to, to sort of give you an idea of how much footage we have. I mean, that's a, you'd think that's a pretty big thing to go to George Hardy's house in, in Alabama and hang out and interview him for a couple hours and stuff like that. And it didn't even make the film. 
As soon as you said that, I was like, oh my God, I want to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we went all over, man. We had a blast, uh, met a ton of new people. And it's it's actually really funny because most of the cast of The Room are like, they're now friends. Like I, I, I talk to them on a regular basis and stuff. It's really cool, you know? Sort of like a geek's uh, dream come true. You know what I mean? Like you watch these people on screen and then it's just like, yeah, let me shoot Juliette Daniela quick text. You know what I mean? It's It's just really funny. Well, tell me about the the other guys that made this movie with you. Tell me about your crew. The cool thing about it, man, is that like Rock Even Pictures, it's uh, three of us. So it's myself. There's Fernando Ferrero and Martin Rassico. A little trivia is that we grew up together. I've known Martin since I'm 10 years old. We've been best friends. And then Fernando sort of joined us a little bit later, like still at 15. So we've known each other for 20, 25 years now. Again, all big fans of of movies, and we all, uh, you know, have different uh, skill sets and stuff like that. So, and it just really meshed perfectly. It's not a matter of, you know, oh, you're my friend, come make this movie with me. No, like Martin is an extremely talented uh, photographer and uh, an editor. So, you know, he came on as a DP for the project. Fernando, he edits for a living. That's that's what he does, you know. So he uh, edited the whole project and took care of all of our social media. So not only did we use the skills that we already had, but developed other skills along the way. You know, when you're working with such a small team, you wear many hats, you know. So it's a lot of times Fernando will be helping Martin with the cameras or Martin will be doing some editing or Fernando would, would be directing uh, certain shots or, or stuff like that, you know. So we work so well together and it's just uh, it's, it's, it's a real blessing, you know. I think we have a, a strong crew and we have similar visions and uh, and like we're we've been best friends our whole life, you know. So it's it's really cool. Then later on, we uh, partnered with a gentleman by the name of Richard Towns. He's an important filmmaker in Ottawa, where I'm from. He uh, owns a studio called Parktown Studios, and they're uh, very successful over there. And I wanted to work with him for a long time. Like he's like the uh, you know that studios are like the big boys in Ottawa, you know. So it was a real honor when uh, when he approached me and said that he wanted to be a part of this. So he helped us with some of the post production and helped us with some money and and stuff like that too. And he's going to be in charge of. Uh, of sales for the movie and distribution and stuff like that, you know? So I've been really, really fortunate that way. When the disaster artist came out, did that kind of uh, complicate things for you as far as the making of the film? It did only in one sense. Now, the disaster artist is a fantastic book, by the way. I'm uh, no, I'm a big, big fan of it. I almost I even, you know, I'm so close to the room that I actually get a little emotional when I read it, but uh, it only complicated things in the sense that we didn't get Greg in the movie. We didn't get Greg in the movie for a few reasons. Uh, early on, like Greg and I are friends. I can hit up Greg anytime, you know, and anytime he's in he's in uh, Canada, like we hang out and stuff like that. So I just figured early on, because I started this in 2011, I figured early on, so yeah, Greg's my boy. He'll always be there. I'll, I'll get to sit down with him at some point. Now, after The Disaster Artist came out and was such a success, uh, his deal with James Franco prevented him from being able to participate in anything else related to the room. Okay, so that was one of the reasons why uh, why he couldn't um, participate. Uh, another factor is that Tommy's not exactly happy with the project and the direction that I decided to take it after we sort of parted ways. And uh, as much as, as Greg and I are friends, I'll never have that closeness that he has with uh, with Tommy. So I think uh, a large part of him not being in the movie had to do with uh, his loyalty to Tommy as well. You know, I don't think Tommy would have been very happy to have him in the movie. And at the end of the day, that's his uh, one of his closest friends and was his, like, I, I guess, quote unquote, boss for a really long time, too. So, you know, I, I respect that. That's cool. And, and I think that the uh, and, uh, and you know what? I think it was 
a really good opportunity to give the actors a louder voice. Greg said everything that he had to say in the book. It was a great book, and he told all of his personal stories. And I think it would have – I encourage people to read it, and I think it would have almost been redundant to have Greg tell some of the stories in the documentary that you can just very easily read in his book. And I think that it was uh, – I, I think, uh, you know, it sort of worked out in the sense that I was happy to give that uh, that that – additional airtime to the actors and let them tell their stories and let them redeem themselves in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of them got a, got a really, uh, you know, had a really rough time after the room. Um, you know, I think of Juliette Danielle with all of her love scenes. And if you've ever been to a screening, people, you know, they call her different names and stuff like that. I was never cool with that. So it was really important to me that she would be like, you know, sort of like, I don't want to say like the center of attention, but that uh, that she would have a lot of airtime and just really get to explain it from her perspective and hopefully have some of these idiotic fans that scream out dumb shit at the, at the screenings, you know, maybe see her in a different light. You answer so many questions that I've always had about it. And just speaking of Danielle, the thing with her neck, I yeah. was so glad that you addressed that in the film. That was wonderful. There's so many little things in, in that movie, you know, and there's, that's why I tried to hit on everything. Like whenever I was sitting down with Denny, that's why, or, or Phil Haldeman, sorry, that's why it was important to me to, to be like, okay, at the end, why do you call Johnny Tommy? You know, and, and stuff like that. Like it was uh, every time I'd, I'd prepare for an interview, I'd watch their scenes and I'd make sure that I address every little thing because, you know, thinking like I'm driving all the way to um, – no Arizona. I'm not going to see Phil Haldeman very often. You know what I mean. So uh, it was important to touch on all those things. Well, it was great because you seem to be coming at this from two angles: one is being a, a, a great filmmaker, and two is being such a fan. So you asked all the questions that felt like all the fans wanted to know. That was important to me because essentially that's that's what I am. You know, like yes, uh, and and thank you for for the compliment. You know, I, I but I, I am a, a filmmaker, or at least uh, you know, during this journey making the room, uh, making room full of spoons, I was uh, you know becoming a filmmaker. But ultimately, like yeah, I was just a, a really big fan. You know, so I think that that um, I think that uh, it really did the project justice in that sense. If I was just a filmmaker that said, hey, look, there's something cool going on at midnight at the, you know, at all these little art house theaters. Uh, let's just document it and try to make a few dollars. It wouldn't have come across. It wouldn't have been the same movie, you know, because then the fans would see right through that. They'd be like, this isn't a real fan. He doesn't even really understand the movie or, or what makes it so special or whatever, you know. On, by that same token, if I was someone who knew absolutely nothing about storytelling or filmmaking or, or, or setting up shots or or uh, pacing or, and stuff like that, then it would have been like, look, this is a really fun uh, fan project, but it's nothing that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that could be taken very seriously. You know what I mean? Now, I know you used crowdfunding for part of the, the budget on the film, and crowdfunding, more than anything these days, it seems like it's a really good barometer as far as the interest in a project. What was your Kickstarter like? Uh, Kickstarter went really well. Uh, I have to thank um, you know, my co-producer, Fernando Ferrero. He really took that by the horns, and he managed that entire project. We didn't know a whole lot about it, but he did you know, incredible research and, and got uh, all the fans engaged and got people aware of the project and stuff like that. So uh, you know, hats off to him for that. I was really happy that the uh, you know, our Kickstarter uh, uh, campaign was successful. 
Uh, I don't think the movie would have been the same without the fans. You know, like, of course, we made this movie for the fans and it was really cool to get them involved towards the end when, you know, I did some additional research and, and I called uh, my producer like in the middle of the night and I was like, holy shit, guys. And like, I think we need to go overseas. You know, he's like, what are you talking about? And I told him sort of what I had found and stuff like that. So we're like, all right, well, by then we had exhausted all of our funds, you know, like we're just like regular working guys. And uh, and we had spent so much time and so much money on this. We're like, all right, well, where are we going to find extra money to, to like now go to Europe for three weeks, you know? And uh, we had the idea of doing a, a Kickstarter campaign. And, you know, thank you so much to the fans and everyone and, and to yourself, man. I mean, I know that you 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 pitched in as well and uh, and, and backed the project. And, uh, and you know, in the end, it was successful. And, and thank goodness for that, because now, uh, you know, I, I really have the movie that I think the fans deserve to see. You started the project four years ago. Where in the timeline was the Kickstarter? Was this kind of late in the game for you? Yeah, it was right at the end. Uh, I remember like uh, like announcing on social media that the movie was pretty much done and that we we're done shooting and we're going to start editing and it's going to be out like I think uh, – my goodness, I think I originally promised it like in July of last year or something like that. And then uh, it was only in, in doing like additional research and stuff. There were certain things about Tommy that I knew, but that I didn't necessarily want to give away because it was hearsay, basically. It was just hearsay. Things that people told me and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. He's from here or whatever, you know. Then I did a bit more digging and I found so much stuff. I was like, you know what? If anyone's going to give out this information, it probably should be me because I'm, uh, you know, I, I know that I can do it in a tasteful and respectful way. And uh, and I figured, so you know what, let's just go to Europe and solve this mystery once and for all. And that's when we decided, like it was a very last minute decision. That's when we decided, so you know what, let's just let's just do our Kickstarter campaign, push this project for another, you know, six or eight months or something like that, and just go see what we can find. You know, so it was uh, it was right towards the end. It was very much a. Uh, like a, a last-minute decision. Promising that the movie would be done in July of last year and then having it ready around, what, February of this year, that is not bad at all because there are so many things that we've funded on Kickstarter years ago that have yet to see the light of day. So uh, I, think, I think your track record's pretty good on that one. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. We really, It was a really busy summer, though. Like we, we, we could have taken another uh, – we could have been polishing this for another six months or, or something like that. But, we you know, we just – all summer we edited and just worked on this like, uh, you know, 14, 16 hours a day, you know, just really trying to make it perfect. And like uh, one of our first cuts of the film was like four hours long or something like that. It still would have probably been entertaining to the fans. I don't think any theater in the world would want to commit to a four-hour picture, you know what I mean? So we had to, to make a lot of like really tough decisions and, and trim down and just really try to tighten up the story. And, and then hopefully you'll, you'll get to see those extra couple hours on the, uh, you know, as a bonus feature or, or something or an extra DVD or something like that, you know? So what's the plan? You said that you premiered in Spain. You've shown it now in Poland. Where else is this film going and when is it going to start playing around the U.S.? For now, we're just sort of doing the roadshow thing, you know, so I, I premiered in Europe mainly because of opportunity. You know, there was this film festival that was interested. Uh, we shot part of it uh, in Madrid, actually. So we just figured, you know, this is, this is perfect timing. Let's just go premiere it there, get a little bit of buzz going on the Internet and stuff like that. So far, we've been approached by a handful of uh, of distributors, but the subject matter is so kind of unique and it already has its built in audience. So you know, we really want to make sure that we make the right decisions so that, uh, you know, it just doesn't get shelved or so that the project gets the attention that it deserves. So 
so for now, I'm going to be in Europe for another couple of weeks, just doing uh, a couple of screenings uh, here and there. I get back. We're going to do our premiere um, in Ottawa. And then I have a couple of uh, commitments, um, you know, in Canada as well. And I'm hoping that by then we'll have some type of proper distribution arrangement or something like that where we'll be able to uh, to, to get digital downloads or, or possibly a small uh, theatrical release or, or however. Because I really it's, it's you know, I really want everyone to see this. And I think people are getting excited. I, I almost feel bad sometimes, man. Like, you know, when I'm announcing like um you know, uh, screenings in Denmark and then people in LA are like, well, this is our movie, man. Like, like the room, like, this is us. Like, where's, where's the LA screening or people in New York? Like, where's the New York screening? You know, I mean, you got to appreciate at a, at a certain level that I don't, this is, this is my first rodeo. Be patient, everyone. I, I don't really know what I'm doing. So, <laughs> so hopefully we'll, uh, like, we'll, we'll be in LA soon. We'll be in New York. We'll be in Detroit soon. Like, uh, you know, it's just, uh, just a matter of time and everyone's going to get to, uh, to, to enjoy the film. So are you going to show this at Lee DeMarb's theater? Yeah. You know, Lee? Oh yeah. Awesome. Yeah, the awesome. One, and then you make that reference to him in, uh, in the movie. And I was so happy for that. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee's my boy. This actually all started at the Mayfair, which is uh, which is really cool. You know, Lee's a, he's an important filmmaker in Ottawa. Truth be told, when I approached Lee to uh, to sponsor the event, there was no talks of a documentary. There was nothing like that. I just wanted to be on Lee's radar. He was fresh off of uh, of making a Smash Cut with uh, Sasha Gray. Huge success, and I just, uh, you know, I, I was just like a, a fanboy, and I just wanted to uh, to become a filmmaker, and I just really wanted to be on his radar. So I'm like, hey, how about I sponsor this event? I figured it's a two for one, right? I get to hang out with Tommy Wiseau, which is really cool, and I become friends with Lee. Like now, Lee will know my name, you know. And uh, he was one of the first people to actually see it. I went to his house uh, right before I left for Europe, and absolutely loved it. So yeah, we're gonna. I, I definitely want to premiere it at the Mayfair. So it's just a matter of making those proper arrangements when I get back. You know, that's awesome. Kind of bring it back to where it started. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Make our story come full circle. You know, you said that you guys are still all working day jobs as you're making this movie. What is your day job? I was a project manager for the government for a long time. So that's what I was doing for the past four years. And now I just uh, sort of taken a sabbatical. So I, uh, I, I left my job and I'm really going to try to pursue the, this filmmaking. You know, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm traveling a lot. I'm meeting a lot of new people. And, uh, you know, it's just something that I've always wanted to do. So uh, I just figured that, um, you know, I'm really going to just, just give it my all and, and see if I can make it in this business. And, you know, failing that, I'll just go get another project management job in the government or something like that. But uh and then uh, my partners, um, Martin Rasko works for uh, the RCMP, equivalent to, to the FBI. Yeah, but he works in multimedia and stuff like that. And then uh, Fernando also works in the government in, uh, in multimedia. He works for, I believe it's the uh, Translation Bureau. So, you know, nothing super exciting, right? But uh, just, you know, desk jobs and stuff like that. But yeah, but, you know, again, this is... Becoming a filmmaker has been my goal for a really long time, and I'm starting to see a little bit of, of success and stuff like that. So it's like, you know what, let me give it a year and see what I can make of this. And, um, and uh, you know, so far so good. It's, I'm, I'm having a really good time. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Mark. 
All right, we are back, and we are talking about Room Full of Spoons. Now, Adam, you have interviewed quite a few folks from the room. Who, who, who are some of the people that you are uh, proudest of talking to? I talked to Tommy himself, and I, I feel like if I can go back in time, I would fix that. I was asking him his fan questions about the room, and he was there to promote this really stupid web show he's doing where he plays video games. So he only wanted to talk about that. And then I was trying to get him to talk about video games, and he couldn't. It's a great interview if you're a fan of Tommy because it makes no sense. And I get frustrated. And uh, But if I can go back in time, I would just ask him random questions. What's your favorite cereal? Would you ever play tennis with a gorilla? Just to hear what he has to say. But it's still a ridiculous interview. But Sandy, uh, I, if you can go back and listen to that, that you learn a lot about the um, the movie. And then you can buy or not buy that he's the director, but... He has great stories about everyone. I interviewed online because the person wouldn't talk to me. Someone who wrote the room fan fiction. That was really interesting. I was just like, and the fan fiction is pretty cool too. But I interviewed Phil Holderman, the guy who played Denny. Oh, hi, Denny. And it annoyed me so much that I stopped doing him. All he kept saying was, when I asked him a question, he's like, well, read it in my comic book. You can read it in my comic book. And then, uh, and he says, he, and he does it in a documentary. He just says, yeah, you know, and, you know, and, you know. So I cut a lot of those out. And I found myself getting bored with him. So the interview was a little choppy because I was just cutting out boring parts. And parts where he was like, I don't want to say, I don't want to say. It was so frustrating. You know, Chris R. I was supposed to do an interview with, and then Julie, the woman, um, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. I mean, still might do it again, but they just seem like uh, they would be seem like normal people in the movie. But it, it's just so fun to hear the background backstory of that movie. You know, that's always the the most fun and get your your questions answered. But there's a lot of now. Do you feel like with the room or maybe other films, maybe Troll Two? It's kind of like uh, you two. Like I was, you know, you're really into them before they were big, and now there's now they're so huge. You're kind of sick of it. Does that ever feel that way with this movie? Not necessarily, because I've never really felt like I've been into the room as much as other people. Like, I remember they, they talk specifically about the Entertainment Weekly article, and I remember reading that and being like, oh, okay, this sounds interesting. But I hadn't been part of the cult before that, and really it wasn't until I got the, the Rift Tracks version of the room that I sat down and watched it. And to your point, I've only watched it by myself. I've never seen it with an audience, so I imagine that would be a whole lot of different but watching it with the riff tracks on i was like i don't think i could ever watch this without <laughs> yeah it's just a bad movie but yeah you definitely see the audience oh i forgot a big one um at the time when the movie came out you know they had that giant billboard and i would see that billboard every day driving to work and so i went that's why i went to see the movie and i dragged my friends and i lied to them and i said this is supposed to be the greatest bad movie ever you're gonna love it we walked out and they're like you're absolutely right it was fantastic so I was working on a, a talk show at the time, and Kristen Bell was my guest, and she was in Entertainment Weekly talking about how much she loves the movie. So I asked her about it and had her talk about it on Jimmy Kimmel Live where I was working. So she was there to promote a different movie, but I got props to get a DVD from Amazon of the movie, and she held it up. And Jimmy was like, does she really want to promote another movie while she's here? And to be honest, I think she'd rather talk about The Room than her film, whatever that was, the project was. So she talks about it, and it's so cool that that's in the uh, documentary. So I really hope that that worked and got a lot of people into the movie from her talking about it. I remember Patton Oswalt being a huge fan. I remember seeing that clip of him with that horrible wig on and stuff. That was a weird impression. I thought it was just mean. I don't know. And was that David Cross at one point? Yeah, wearing a... That was David Cross. Okay. That was funny. I, I don't know. I just thought that YouTube video of him, it just 
it's just kind of unnecessarily cruel to Tommy. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just, I don't know why I felt that way, but the, then the, the David Cross one, I just thought was, yeah, it was funny. Um, you know what the movie had, I'm sorry to jump back, but they talk about two big mysteries in the movie. Where does the money come from? And who, where's Tommy was so from? And, um, I thought the money thing, I wish they had gone further with that. Yeah, especially when they're showing those like letters and stuff, and it has fraud and $650,000 and all this. I'm like, oh, there's some really juicy stuff here. I'd like to see more. But I'm like, I'm wondering if the lawyers told them that they couldn't have more in the movie or something. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, you know, yeah, I thought that was really um, interesting. And I thought she was an interesting character, the secret benefactor of this film. This film would have been a great, and maybe it's not too late to do it making of a murder style TV show because there's so much in this movie. Like every 20 minutes is a totally different show. It feels like there's this mystery of uh, where the money comes from, the mystery of where he comes from, which they get into really well. They're talking about how the movie's made this, the documentary's made. And then there's a whole section of this kind of shits on Tommy where everyone says, Oh yeah, Tommy made this movie all about him. And they show clips of people talking about Tommy, but that's kind of obvious, right? I mean, you don't spend $6 million of your own money to make a movie about somebody else. If you have an ego, let's use it. I'm sure you read The Disaster Artist. I have to be honest. I have not read The Disaster Oh, really? Oh, I can't recommend it enough. Actually, I recommend the audio version of it because it's actually Greg Sestero reading it. And uh, he does a, a fantastic Tommy impersonation. Oh, that's hilarious. Now, what did you learn from this movie that wasn't in The Disaster Artist? Just all of the different perspectives. I mean, because the disaster artist is just Greg's experience. And it's really like, it's more of his autobiography. And then when Tommy comes in, it kind of shifts to the Tommy story. But at the same time, he's just like flabbergasted the whole time of like, just it, there's just this like weird jealousy stuff between Tommy and him, like where you know he put together um, like a reel to take around in Hollywood and everything, and had all of his clips and all this kind of stuff. And the next thing you know is like Tommy's making a reel, and you know he's reading Shakespeare. Next thing you know, Tommy's reading Shakespeare. Like uh, they showed a clip from the commercial uh, where Tommy's like dressed up, and it's like to be or not to be. That is the question. He's like, yeah, he did that because we were talking about Shakespeare. This is just, just this weird, like, obsession that Tommy had with him and stuff. And it was very single white female esque kind of thing. What I found from Roomful of Spoons was all those other perspectives because I was just getting Sisteros from his book. But uh, I really do recommend it. It's a, it's a great, great read. And I would say that the two things really complement one another rather than like well if you read one you don't need to see the other or vice versa i think that they really uh pair well together why do you think tommy shunned this documentary well i think probably for a few reasons i mean he mentions james franco in the yelling phone call in, in one part so i have a feeling that there's probably some like legal agreement as far as they're making the disaster artist movie and you know you can't be involved with any other projects. And then I'm not sure, maybe just for fear of, you know, other stuff coming out or, you know, if Rick is there digging deep and getting this information about Tommy's backer and about his real name and where he's from and all this, 
obviously he doesn't want any of that stuff to come out. So maybe at that point he was just like, Hey, you got to knock it off. I don't want this stuff. It, it needs to be sanctioned. But by that point, I think he was already in bed with Seth Rogen's company and it was just like, no, 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 stop it. I mean, but that's just all conjecture on my part. Yeah. I think that you're right. There's two things happening. One is there must be some kind of legal thing. And then the other is a, uh... Tommy just feeling bummed that the truth is coming out. And I don't know why he's hiding that he's from Poland or, or sorry, spoiler alert. He's hiding from where he's from, but uh, I guess because he wants to be American so badly, which is another great. I'm so glad they showed clips from Rebel Without a Cause. I didn't make that connection at all. No, I didn't either. Even the you're tearing me apart, Lisa thing. I was just like, well, that's kind of like the you're tearing me apart. But those other things with the chicken and all that stuff, I never made that connection for some reason. Wait, like, why is he pushing him over the ledge? And that angle, that shot. Yeah, Sandy um, said in my interview that he quit because he didn't want to do the sex scene. But it kind of, Sandy's story kind of fits the other people's stories where he's saying, like, Tommy, once Sandy quit to do a real movie, he was dead to Tommy. And that's what everybody was saying that that happened. So that part, I believe. And then he took his name off all the credits. I imagine he would give Sandy, like, a script supervisor credit, if even. But no way would he give him a director's credit. Well, I think that's what he would have gotten if he just, I was going to say kept cool, but just did whatever Tommy wanted. Yeah. And it's a non-union movie, so you have no recourse. So you're doing this, you know, everyone's doing this movie out of greed. So the idea was that Tommy was a sucker and he was buying all the stuff from a rental house and they needed somebody to shepherd along. So they got Sandy, who, who at best was available on a Sunday afternoon, you know, in terms of his uh, talent. So it's kind of shitty. They took advantage of a guy, you know, full of his money. Uh, come to L.A., but accidentally made this great film, which is great. I'm so glad Sandy was there. I'm so glad all those elements were there. Well, I'm still really curious as far as how much of it is them like seeing this guy as a sucker and how much of it was him just voluntarily like, oh, we need this thing. Go buy it. Like just those weird decisions, like the video and film thing <laughs> shooting at once, that just always perplexes me. And that is like when I heard that the first time, I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" There's no way. And I'm thinking like they're doing some sort of like amazing thing with like mirrors and setting up like one lens for both things. It's like no, no, no. They're just locked next to each other, two cameras, so they're slightly apart. So you can't necessarily shift from one to another without it looking like a jump cut. And and also the quality of the video at that particular particular time was not that of the film. And I'm just like, oh, why? Why would you do this? Thing? It also gives the movie this unique look that no other movie has. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, this kind of just off center, just a little bit not in frame. It's another happy accident that makes this movie so great. Somebody could have said you could have uh, you can just rent this for a dollar instead of buying it for a hundred. But no one's that, that dumb in L.A. They're like, fuck it. And I'm sure people walked home. I don't know what happened to all that equipment. That's what I was thinking of as a former production manager. But all that stuff, who's, who's re-renting that stuff out? Yeah, or did they try to sell it back? And they're just like, oh, sure, we'll buy it back for you know 5% of what you paid for it. Sure, yeah. That's probably what it was. It kind of cracks me up because in a few weeks we're going to be covering Ed Wood on the show. And one of the things that has come up about Ed Wood is that he wanted to pretend to be a director like he didn't necessarily care about anything other than the making of the movie so he loved the whole idea of you know yelling cut and print and these kind of things and that's exactly what tommy felt like to me was this whole idea of like he likes being there on the set and yelling cut and print but having no idea 
about the rest of it, you know, because you see him yelling action and these kind of things, but he's not really directing the film. So it's, it's just like he so much feels like he's pretending to be a director and pretending to be a movie star. And God love him, he kind of became that, but, you know, just for all the wrong and weird reasons. Yeah, but he did it. He did exactly what he wanted. Like, he should be thanking everybody who worked in this film, the the weird thing in, in Lisa's neck. You should thank everybody for making this movie that now he's a superstar. He's an international superstar, bigger than most people will ever be, good or bad. And and he did it. So he gets credit for not being a director at all, but I don't know, just being an artist. He is an artist. He's an amazing artist. He's a performance artist. Uh, he's playing this character. He gave himself a mysterious background. It's pretty amazing. It always kills me, though, when people talk about the worst movie ever made. You've seen a lot of bad movies, and I've seen a lot of bad movies. And when people try to say, like, oh, this is the worst movie ever made, I'm just like, you really don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's definitely the best worst movie ever made. Like, it's it's not. It's a good movie, you know, by default. Yeah, a lot of people, like, I would book uh, weird talent for shows, and, like, their talent is not being talented. And they're so not talented in such a good way, because there's so many bad movies that are just unwatchable. There's enough of those that don't go anywhere. Uh, I saw one called, and I'm sorry if this person happens to accidentally listen to the show, called uh, The Karma Police. It was about a guy who gets mixed up with the karma police who literally do what you think, they get revenge on people do bad karma and they spend half the movie convincing this guy they're real and so we believe they're real and then he joins them and then he finds out they're not real so you're like first of all the guy's a terrible actor he's got eight moles on his head he obviously wrote directed and stars in this thing and so the fact that they made us trust the movie and then took that away from us like no one told them in that when they read the script that that's not how movies work <laughs> you know what i mean uh, it was it was like the spanish prisoner but not good <laughs> talentless Spanish prisoner so that movie I guess that movie was fun to watch I was just very like any Adam Sandler movies like they're painful to watch they're not good they are and it was so funny there's a whole section where people are like well the movie was lit well and oh and they and they it sounded good so it, some of the interviews they do in this documentary are from Skype which looks good I did it for a TV show I was working on I had to do all these pre-interviews I was in my bedroom nobody like like now I guess I'm not very more professional now but anyway, he interviews the sound guy, and everybody looks and sounds good. The sound guy's wearing this headset, and he sounds awful. <laughs> he sounds so bad, I know. I was just like, how ironic. <laughs> He's got like a Radio Shack Fisher-Price headset on. And I'm like, what, the sound guy doesn't have a better microphone? He can't at least like record it separately, and then you sync it back up later? You know? Just, oh, my God. Oh, uh, no. Or at least use the I think some people are using the computer mic which works much better board, than that. yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you know and the other guy who's the skype interview he's got the fan in the background so then with the way that skype doesn't record every frame it's just like i'm like obsessing about the fan over his shoulder <laughs> oh yeah i was wondering about that yeah yeah i was like it looks weird and that's why yeah, it was a very the room moment and also his picture the director's picture in picture he's on the bottom that happened to me once, and I was just able to go on iMovie and uh, crop it out. But he left himself in, and I felt like if he knew that, he probably would have used more of that person's interview. Yeah, I was glad they talked about the post-dubbing and everything, because that always cracks me up. There's a lot of post-dubbing. Yeah, almost the whole thing. Because you, you can hear that kind of sound difference. Like, 
talk about uh, on The Apprentice when Donald Trump would talk to the the people. All of a sudden, his voice would be completely different with a different background. Yeah, and then they cut back to him finally going, "Okay, now go off." <laughs> you know, don't worry about it. But that's what that whole movie was. Just great mistakes. I'm so glad they talked about Lisa's neck. That's my favorite. And it's almost like out of airplane, you know, where her neck while she's talking just bulges at certain points. And you couldn't plan it better. You couldn't write a comedy. If you were to do a movie that was supposed to be the world's worst movie, you couldn't make that up. That's why this movie is so good. I don't yeah, know. nobody so, in the writer's room would have said like, and what about this thing where the lead actress's neck has a character of its own? Yeah, there's a scene in an airplane where uh, this guy is being attacked by a dog in the background. And the joke is supposed to be that it's the world's kindest dog. And, like, who knows that? But it's just funny to see a dog, you know, attacking another person. That's what it reminded me of that scene. Like, I don't know, it's just so funny. Yeah, there was, it's so unintentionally great. And that's, yeah, they do say, is he just good at ac- falling into accidents? Maybe, because this is an accidentally great movie. Yeah, I've tried to watch Tommy and other stuff, like, uh, like the Tim and Eric show or that um, House That Drip Blood on Alex and some of those other things. I'm just like, yeah, it, it, he's now like so self-aware of what a horrible actor he is that he just like goes way beyond. Uh, I, I preferred more the sincere, you know, him trying to be sincere in the room and then just getting those horrible results. Now he can just be bad on purpose but it just doesn't ring true to me. It's like Birdemic. Like, you can't... Birdemic 2 is a piece of shit because the guy is trying to be bad. Just make another good movie, and then it'll, it'll come out badly, trust me, and we'll all love it. I heard that he was a pain in the ass on Tim and Eric. I can't say that I'm surprised. He, he's done a, a couple of things. He's in um, Samurai Cop 2 as the bad guy. I still need to see those movies. Yeah, me too. I have to see that one. Maybe we'll do another episode. Sounds good. Well, hey, if you want to find out more about Roomful of Spoons, go to roomfulofspoons.com. That's all one big word. And you've got uh, previews, uh, some screening notices, news, all that kind of stuff. You can link over to their social media and keep up with them. Uh, see the pretty amazing uh, poster that's going on with that. And if you want to go over to Proudly Resents, I think the URL is what? Just proudlyresents.com, right? That's it. Or at Proudly Resents. I know I got it, people. I'm the one who got it. At Proudly Zen's on Twitter, and then reach Adam at Mac.com. You get a lot of uh, you know people writing to you, wanting to buy those handles and stuff from you. The the URL. The Proudly Zen's. Yeah. Oh, all the time. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> I say no way. My seven listeners need to reach me any time of the day. You cannot have this. Oh yeah, people are knocking down the door. But yours, what's your URL? How do people find you? Well, I couldn't get projectionbooth.com, so it's projection-booth.com. The woman who owns projectionbooth.com is like, no, 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 I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to do something. Uh, I'm not sure what yet, but I'm going to do something. There's a guy who has, uh, I had reach Adam for my Twitter for a while, and I took it off and changed it to Proudly Resents, and I wanted to change it back, but someone took it meanwhile and has not tweeted once. Yeah, I think she still has a Hello World page up, so it just kind of kills me. Yeah. Dancing gnomes. God, I wish I would appreciate that if there was like the coming soon with the little animated gif of the guy digging. That would be pretty cool. 
So yeah, go ahead, go on over to proudlyresents.com. There'll be more in the show notes for this. And if you go over to projection-boot.com, they'll probably be the same thing. I'll link over to all the old episodes of Proudly Resents where you talk to some of these fine folks. I can't read to, wait to read more about the uh, fan fiction here. Oh yeah, that was cool. And the person who wrote it is kind of a kook. So that was kind of fun too. And there's a link to the video game too. I didn't talk to people who made it, but there's a link to the game. Yeah, if you're ready to waste a day, go on over. Because you're just doing the movie. It's so much fun. And I love the 8-bit score for it. I mean, that was, that was the other thing I really liked was the interview with the composer, who actually seems to know what he's doing. Yeah, I, yeah, but it's still terrible. Watching this movie, and everyone's kind of, all the actors, and they're, they're kind of shitting on Tommy and, and the movie and everything. They're all terrible people. I mean, not they're good people, but they're terrible actors. They're terrible at everything they do. That's why they're there. And that's why the movie's so good. Uh, you know, like, they're like, oh, and then Tommy said this and that. Your performance would not have been any better for Scorsese. The lighting was good because there was good lighting people. The acting was bad because you were 19 and you had never done this before. This is why you've never done anything else. Uh, and that's fine, you know. This movie is what, it's just a moment in time and it's so great. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for coming on the show, and I guess thanks to me for coming on to your show. Oh, thank you very much for coming on my show. Uh, you're always welcome. I told you you'd be on my show. <laughs> I finally came through. What's the other shows that I've been on with you? We talked about um, The Punisher, Eating Raul. Death Race 2000. Oh, that's a great movie. Those are people in a bad movie who went all went on to do great things. Exactly. Well, Sylvester Stallone was just nominated for an Oscar. Oscar nominee. And you think, was David Carradine ever nominated for an Oscar? I wouldn't be surprised. I'll have to check on that one. Maybe an Emmy? Maybe a Kung Fu Emmy? Oh, God, yes. Kane was just kick-ass. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. So, and your show is great. And uh, what episodes should people look out for if they the first-time listener? You know, I, I like pointing people back to the Night Moves episode, the Gene Hackman movie from the 70s. I really like that one. And we just did one on Looker, the Michael Crichton movie. Uh, I really had a good time in the discussion with that one. Uh, and we have to, I just thought of a movie today I was hoping you to cover, but Dubedio, do you ever hear that movie? You brought that up to me, and I have since acquired it, so we definitely need to do an episode of that. I'm very excited. Uh, maybe you can find the director, because you're good at that stuff. I could not find him. I try my best. So that sounds like uh, one for 2017 because you know how I plan ahead way too much. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you, we scheduled this four months ago. I was still living in an apartment. I, wasn't, I didn't even have a kid at the time. I was a grandfather, but I didn't have a kid. It's weird how that works. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for having me on your show, and thank you for coming on mine. Thank you, sir.
Cheap, cheap. Who says he didn't hit her? He did not. 